Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. Yes, good job. Yes, conditioning. All right. Uh, book of Acts, we are in this series called The Spirit-Filled Church. And uh, we're asking two questions. We're asking what, what did it mean to be a Spirit-Filled Church? And we're asking that so that we can, we can live what it means. We want to learn what it meant so that we can live what it means. Clickety-clack there. Clacky clue. There we go. Bop bop and clickety clackety. There we go. Very good. Uh, but before we continue uh, asking those kinds of questions, I want to want to ask you a couple questions. Um, remembering that what we learn about being a spirit filled church is is meaningful to what it means to be a spirit-filled person. The principles that we observe that are true for the church are true for our own hearts and true for our homes. Amen. Good, good. That's a good... I would, thanks for not making me work hard on that one. Uh, but before we continue, let me ask this question. What would you trade... Now, this is rhetorical. What, what would you trade for your faith? I, had, I tried to say rhetorical because I, that's a good way to get something thrown at you in, at Heritage. Um, what would you trade for your faith? Uh, a couple of, a week or two ago, I was had the privilege of uh, interviewing some candidates, uh, ministerial candidates, candidates who are going to get ordained, and uh, one of them said that how how they were so thankful to be part of uh, this area, our our in, in the of our network here in in Washington. And how it was such a neat, a neat network, the Northwest Ministry Network, and how glad they were to be a part of it. And they kind of went on and on about it, and I thought, well, it's interesting. I'm going to make that work for me. And uh, so before we kind of came to the end of the interview to be ordained, I said, you know, you mentioned how grateful you are to be a part of this very unique network. And I said, and, and it really is. There's kind of a secret that no one else knows about being a part of this network, and here's the deal. I said, in in my... In this, uh, I have a folder. I had, a, I have a check for one million dollars, and I'll, and here's the, and here's our program. I'll give you if you will deny, if you will deny, being ordained today, you get a check for a million dollars. Yeah. Now, of course, I was lying. <laughs> but uh, my friend, Detective Brian Salwasser, tells me that you can kind of play fast and loose with the facts when you're getting after the truth with a, a, sus- a suspect. <laughs> I just, I'm just discipled. So, um, um, so I said, you know, I'll give you this million dollar check if you'll just say, no, I, I don't need to be ordained. I'll walk away. And now they figured out pretty quick that I didn't have a check. <laughs> but my, my, but the point was, what's it worth? Is it, what does this matter to you? Would you, are you, is it something that you would be willing to walk away from if? So. I come back to the question, what's your faith worth? What would you, what would you walk away? What would it take for you to walk? What would it take for you to walk away? What would you exchange in order to give up the open practice and profession of your faith? I'd say a million dollars, but I guess that's not very much anymore. Barely, barely buy a house. Well, look, take a look. If you want, if you've got kids, you need a big one, and it's, they're expensive. If I offered you luxury, if I said no more taxes, if I said, hey, I will double your lifespan, 
That was miracles. Uh, <laughs> what would it take for you to bail on any sort of public faith? Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6. We're going to read quite a bit. Well, I won't read as much as we're going to cover. I'm going to read the last part of chapter 6. I'm going to let you know what happens in chapter 7, and then we'll... At the, and then we'll pick it up at the end of chapter 7. But we're about, there's about 50 or so verses in chapter 7 we won't read aloud. I'll tell you what they are. They are. It is a speech by a man named Stephen. It's one of the longest speeches in the book of Acts. There's probably good reasons that Luke included it, not the least of which, I think, is if you, if you didn't have an Old Testament handy, you could read Acts chapter 7, and uh, Stephen's speech sort of gives you the, the cliff notes of where we got, how we got here. But here we go. This is, uh, we're picking it right up from where we were last week. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of the freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, etc. Uh, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about him, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Good. You should pause while well, I take the jacket off and get a little warm. That's been a good place for you to be in shock. Good. <laughs> this roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they were lying about him to others. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking. Now listen, here's a big clue when someone's beginning to engage in serpent speech. That is, when someone begins to twist the truth to, to their own agenda and exaggerate, here's a good clue. This guy's always saying stuff. This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Then the rest of seven is Stephen's response. The the, the, the chief priest at the Sanhedrin says, are these accusations true? And then Stephen responds. And then what we'll hear in his response or what you can see in his response is less Stephen defending himself and more Stephen indicting his audience. <laughs> Stephen will then explain to them uh, uh, that the, the, he'll, he will challenge what some of the things that they are clinging to. Uh, he will challenge the notion uh, that, that, uh, of, uh, of their, their privileged territory. 
He will remind them how God revealed himself and spoke to people outside of the nation of Israel. And then he will remind them uh, that uh, how they have always, how they had always as a people rejected their deliverers. Then he'll, he goes so far as to challenge their attitude toward the temple itself. Finally reminding them that, again, that they had rejected their leaders, they'd persecuted the prophets, even the one who prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus, who he said, and you murdered the righteous one. This, uh, this is where we pick it up, right here. Verse 51, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. They gnashed their teeth. They had... They gave themselves over to unbridled rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the place of honor at God's right hand. And they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Ah, you know, you've seen that. Then they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yep, here is Luke again introducing a character we'll pick up with later. Verse 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. What is the Spirit-filled church? The Spirit-filled church is a matter of life and death. The greatness and gravity of our faith inspires and informs how we live and how we die. It enables us to do both without compromise, without fear, and without ever taking our eyes off of Jesus. This is the gravity of our faith. Let's start with how a matter of life. It's a matter of life and death. Let's start with, look at life. Look, how, look at Stephen's example for us in terms of how we live. Uh, in verses 8 through 15, Luke tells us more about Stephen. First of all, it tells us that he was full of grace and power. Wow. Now, he's already told us that he was a man full of, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, so he's not changing the subject. I'm going to suggest to you that what he's doing is, is, uh, is that at first he's told us about Stephen's character. He's full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. But when he talks about being full of grace and power, I believe he's telling us what comes out of Stephen. Yes. This is what comes out of him. This is what comes out of spirit-dependent people. 
grace, and power. Now Luke tells us that Stephen was performing miracles and signs among the people. Who's this guy? You see, he's not one of the three, not one of the four, not one of the twelve. Likely wasn't in the upper room. Likely is a, is, a, is a convert after even the day of Pentecost. Who's this guy? What we see in the book of Acts is what we should, we should call the, the democratization of the miraculous. That means more and more people are participating in the demonstration of God's power. Who's this guy? Stephen. Stephen, a guy we've never heard of before. We just call him Steve. He's Remember, he sells insurance. And yet God is using him in grace and power. And if that's true for Steve, the Spirit-filled church is a place where people are full of grace and power. So members of of a, a local synagogue wanted to debate with him, but Luke tells us that they could not overcome, they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. I think it's important. Here we see an example of grace coming out of him. That he did that his 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 debaters were not outmatched by his snark. They were not silenced by his uh, sarcasm. They were not hushed by his harshness. But they were outmatched by the wisdom and the grace that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Again, just Steve. So they lied about him. If they'll lie about Steve, they'll probably lie about you. Uh, So they lied about him. Specifically, they lied about what he said about Moses and the temple and God. And it was all rooted in what he claimed to be true about Jesus. So having circulated the accusations among other people, they then haul him in front of the Sanhedrin and they present these very substantiated accusations against him. How were they substantiated? Because they told this guy, and they told this guy, and then they told him. So there we go. Circulated it. It's no fun to be accused, is it? Especially unfairly or dishonestly by those whose agenda is to harm you. Friends, it's important to just pause and remember that to accuse others, to twist others' words or to distort the truth to fit your agenda is serpent speech. But what's what's Stephen's response, beginning in verse 15 of 6 there? So they stared at him because his face became as bright as an angel's. Luke here is holding nothing back. He is letting Stephen show us what it looks like to be spirit-dependent. Grace, power. Till now, even his countenance glows with a confidence and a hope that reflects heaven. These are the kind of moments that we really show what we're full of. You know, I like pinatas. Because the harder you hit them, the more likely something sweet will come out. So Stephen's face does not reflect the ugliness of his accusers. His countenance does not reflect his circumstances, and our face should not reflect the ugliness of our world, but rather the hope of heaven. 
Now, we've already told you the sum of Stephen's speech. He counters their concept of sacred territory. He challenges their attitude toward the temple. He challenges their, their allegiance to Moses. And, uh, and they have repeatedly rejected deliverers, ultimately Christ himself. And so we pick it up where they are infuriated. They hear what he says, and they're infuriated. We get at, verse, at verse 54 of 7, at, they shake their fists, they gnash their teeth at him in unbridled rage, like, a, like almost a demonic expression of rage. And Stephen's response is to gaze into heaven. He fixes his gaze. He looks steadily into heaven. This is what faith does. He looks up not around. He does not allow the rage around him to remove his focus. And then what you see is what he actually claims as they're angry with him. He claims that to be having a vision of Jesus, and he, he essentially quotes Daniel 7. He says, look, I see Jesus. He's standing at the right hand. He's, uh, I see the Son of Man. He's at the place of honor. What he says is this, Daniel 7, 14, the son, about the Son of Man. He was given authority honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is the Spirit-filled church. Even as the world rages around us, our eyes are captured by the glory and the power of Jesus. But this is finally too much. For the Sanhedrin, they cover their ears with their hands. They shout so that they cannot hear Stephen's praises of Jesus. And they rush at him, dragging him outside the city and stone him to death. They kill him. This just got real. Not that it wasn't real before. They were, they were threatened before. They were arrested before. They were even roughed up quite a bit before. But now they have killed him. The shock that must have gone through the community here. This changes when we see the severity, the gravity of what our faith can cost. It changes our approach to how we live. If our faith can cost us our life, then we evaluate how we live. Stephen's faith cost him everything. In rage and brutality, his accusers murder him for his faith. He lived it, he spoke it, and they killed him for it. But before we reflect on this, I just it's worth it to pay attention to what happened. There were rules for this kind of execution. I guess so technically they didn't really have authority to, to, to carry them out without Rome's permission, but there were, the rabbis did have rules for this kind of execution. And, the, and to their credit, the, the rules that they had in place were to try to prevent it, this kind of horror. So they, the, the rules were if, they were, if someone were going to be executed by stoning, that the, 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 the sinner had to be taken outside the city, then he would need to strip. They would strip him or he would strip off his garments. Then the guilty party would pray for mercy. May my sin atone, may my death atone for my sin. Something like that. 
And then they would throw him off a small cliff, at least twice his height, and then throw large stones at him until dead. Now, in this story, they pro- they, we see, Luke tells us, they did take Stephen outside the city. They probably eventually dropped him off a ledge. But here's where the story changes. Luke tells us that they, his murderers, took their coats off. Now, this may have been for any kind of reason, but remember, according to the rules, the guilty party is the one who disrobes. And Luke pauses to tell us they took their coats off. I see what Luke's laying down. (laughs) Then as they are killing him, he does not confess his sin or pray for mercy for himself. The first thing he does is say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What he's doing is he's praying the prayer they all pray every night from Psalm 31.5. I, I entrust my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. It was an evening prayer uh, of the people. If you watch The Chosen, you'll see them murmur something like that before they go to bed. They'll lift their hands and they'll say something like that. But he doesn't say, I entrust, I entrust my spirit to you, for you are a faithful God. He doesn't use the sacred name. He doesn't say Yahweh. What does he say? I entrust my spirit to you, Jesus. Wow. Finally, he does not pray for mercy for himself, but for those who are killing him. He does not say, may my death atone for my sin, but no, he turns and prays for mercy for those who are killing him. The harder you hit him, the more grace comes out. What comes out of you? What comes out of us when we are inconvenienced? or annoyed, or offended. Something far less than uh, rocks being hurled at us. Stephen is the first martyr of the Spirit-filled church. Martyrs are not murderers, and they are not suicide bombers. Just for clarification. Martyrs, the Spirit-filled church does not Force our faith, but we will die for it. And Stephen's example really challenges the idea of polite civil practice of religion. Stephen's example forbids us to exalt petty differences above our devotion to Christ and to one another. Yeah, I, 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 have to, I, hate, I hate to grab this low-lying fruit, and I hate to always reference it, but you know, a week ago we, re- we remembered September 11th, and I was chatting with Lori again I was thinking, I was just saying, babe, I, I, I don't want to press it too hard because if I do, it'll sound like some sort of a heavy trip to lay on people. But the idea of Stephen's martyrdom had to send such a shock, a shock wave, and it still should. It should, it should shock us out of, of convenience. It should shock us out of, of treating lightly our faith. Right. You remember, you know, Monday, September 10th, People were still fussing and fighting and mad at their neighbors and honking mad at each other. On Tuesday, Boy Scouts were passing out flags on the corners, and everyone was our neighbor. When it gets real, it causes us to reevaluate. 
And a story like this, we have to look at it and say, our faith is not a convenience. It is not a social club. This is not something that we fit into our lives. This is our Stephen, the the phrase, what's in it for me, did not come out of Stephen's mouth. Revelation 12, 11 says, and they defeated him, they defeated the dragon, and they defeated him by the blood of the lamb, by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Stephen gave up his life before he would give up his faith. I want you guys to get ready. Stephen became a martyr, as have thousands after him, because it is impossible to reconcile the claims of our faith with a world narrative that rejects Christ as Lord. This is why there have been thousands and thousands of martyrs throughout the years. Now, martyrdom occurs less frequently as Christians relinquish their commitment to obey God instead of man. When we begin to seek the praises of men instead of pleasing God, it is not we who die, but our testimony. And bold martyrdom fades into silent complicity. And when it does... Darkness, oppression, corruption grow unchecked. The Spirit-filled church stands without fear, without compromise, with full of grace, full of power, never taking our eyes off of Jesus. Stephen's example informs and inspires how we live and how we die. This is the Spirit-filled church. So what would you trade for your faith? Better yet, how will you live because of your faith? I'm going to ask our worship team to lead us in a chorus of consecration. Would Would you present your lives afresh and surrender to Jesus today? Can we stand together? Worship team, would you lead us? Meg, please.
Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would fill your church. Fill us with faith. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. So much so, Lord, that all that comes out of us is grace and power. Grace and power. Lord, we thank you for Stephen's example. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to faithfulness to Christ. To live and even to die with grace and power. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Somebody said amen. 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 God bless you all. Thanks for being here today. Do two things. Be kind to someone on your way out, and then find your children.